We're going to read two verses today, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And you'll, you'll notice as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount this year, we have been, we've been looking specifically at Jesus' words. And this is what Jesus had to say uh, in the context of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 31. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as you speak, we will listen. That as you, as you open your word to us today, Lord, that, that we would uh, gain what you have for us. All for your glory, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we are in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Matthew, uh, we come to Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It's no accident, let me say this, it is no accident that you are here today. It is no accident God knew that you would be here and he wants you to hear this. You are either in several, one of several camps today. You are either married or you've never been married or you were married or you hope to be married or not. If you're married, you need some kind of help. Everything isn't perfect. If you were married or have never been married and are hoping to be married someday, there are some things you need to get straight. And even if you never plan to marry or marry again, you will probably find yourself in a position of being asked someone's advice or to give counsel to others. See, we all need what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And God has a word for us today. Those who hear this message, there is a message He wants us to get. Uh, he wants us uh, to bring about, He wants to bring about some change in us and in our homes and in His church and in the communities in which we live. Now, in the context of marriage and divorce and remarriage, most people would agree that staying married is the best option. But we are living in a time when marriage between a man and a woman stands in danger of being dismissed as non-essential to society instead of basic to its foundation. We have witnessed in our lifetimes widespread breakdown and redefinition of marriage and a collapse of the home. Christians struggle in their own homes to believe biblical truth, much less uphold its standards, and much less as it speaks to marriage and family. As a pastor, I am often asked to deal with the inevitable questions that people have, not just questions, but complaints, and not just complaints, but accusations against their own spouses that arise when married couples can't get along. You know what I'm talking about. Things like this. He always... 
She always, he never, she never. You mean God wants me to live with that? And how about this one? Classic. Well, doesn't God want me to be happy? God wouldn't want me to be miserable, would he? Or this, I shouldn't have to endure all of this. Now, I want to tell you, I do not look down on anyone for expressing opinions such as these or asking these kind of questions. But these questions do reveal a very self-centered perspective. Which is very understandable because when someone's marriage is in trouble, they are very focused on the situation. They're just trying to survive. They don't want to be held accountable for every word they speak in that situation. Though they might, might jest. But I, I understand what is going on when, when I receive comments like this and when I get questions like that. But we have been conditioned in our culture to think like our culture on topics of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And to often go to our culture and to man's wisdom rather than going to the Word of God, the objective Word of God, for the rationale in responding to these, to these and other questions as it relates to this context. Why is it that we would rather go to the culture than to the objective Word of God? Often, because we don't like the answers God's Word gives us. Most of the time, we know the answer already. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to be comforting to you or not. But I'm going to say it anyway. It wasn't any easier back in Bible times. It may have been more difficult. Marriage was in jeopardy when Jesus came on the scene in the first century. Never before in history had marriage and the home been in greater danger of extinction than it was in those days. It came from two fronts. It came from a religious front and it came from a, a secular front. Religiously, uh, the, just as the Pharisees and the scribes had, had twisted and, and perverted and misunderstood and misstated uh, God's teachings on things like murder and anger and adultery and lust, they led people astray on the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage as well. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Jesus, once again, is pointing out the difference between what the people had been taught and what God's Word actually said and what God's Word actually meant. So in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 31, Jesus says this. He says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, not on a trip, not on a vacation, but divorces her, whoever sends his wife away, let, her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, before we go any further, let me say this. The Bible's teaching on divorce cannot be understood apart from its teaching on marriage. So let's, let's talk about marriage first. Marriage is God's institution. 
Just as there are today, there were in those days conflicting views and conflicting practices with regard to marriage. Various views either holding marriage as originating with God and therefore sacred or or um, as a matter of convenience and a matter of one's own interpretation and one's own preferences. But the biblical view is, is quite simple. It's that God instituted marriage uh, to be an exclusive and permanent union between one man and one woman, which God makes and man must not break. God makes it, man must not break it. God created marriage. You can see it in in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, when he said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, literally stick to like glue, and they shall become one flesh. God creates a one flesh relationship in marriage that is intended to be for life. For life. Now Matthew 5, 31 and 32 focuses on Jesus' consistent endorsement of the, the permanence of marriage as, as God's purpose. He is preoccupied with the institution of marriage where Pharisees were fixated on grounds for divorce. Jesus is preoccupied with people staying married. The scribes and the Pharisees were preoccupied with finding ways out. In theory, no one had a higher view of marriage than the Jews. In theory. Uh, Their rabbis had these great sayings. Uh, Here's one. A Jew must surrender his life rather than commit idolatry, murder, or adultery. Another one, this, this might bring you to tears. It says, the very altar sheds tears when a man divorces the wife of his youth. And, and another, unchastity causes the glory of God to depart. Mere words, unless backed up by actions. See, in practice, the Jews fell tragically short of the ideal. Their beliefs, their traditions, their actions collided. And the Greco-Roman culture wore them down. They assimilated. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at what that culture was like. Roman culture. To Romans, by the way, the, the home was everything to the Romans. The priority of patria potestas meant that the father held the, the power of life and death over every member of the household. So women were either under their father's authority or under their husband's. There was this, in the Roman Empire, there was this high degree of morality. Uh, You could call it forced morality, but morality in action nonetheless, to the extent, so much so, that for the first 500 years of the commonwealth, there was not a single case of divorce recorded. For 500 years. Not until 234 B.C., when a man divorced his wife because she was childless and he wanted children. The Latin jurist Modestimus said this, Marriage is a lifelong fellowship of all divine and human rights. Then came the Greeks. Morals did a nosedive under Greek influence. 
It can be rightly said that militarily, Rome conquered Greece. But morally, Greece conquered Rome. Let's look at Greek culture. Greek culture was immorality. One of the reasons it died was it had a very low view of women. They, women in those days, in that culture, were secluded. They could not be seen in public alone. They had no part in social life. Husbands demanded purity from their wives. And from themselves, they demanded complete moral laxness. Anything went. Relationships outside of marriage were expected. It allowed and even expected men to be unfaithful to their wives. Prostitution was the norm. Was not looked down upon. Divorce in those days required no legal process whatsoever. All a man had to do to dismiss his wife was in the presence of two witnesses, let her know she was gone, and he had to return her dowry in full. In a culture like that, biblical teaching on marriage was foreign. Now, by the second century BC, Greek morals had infiltrated Rome. In Rome, the, the, the commonwealth that had had no divorce for 500 years, now divorce became as common as marriage. In a culture, that had upheld marriage for so long. Seneca spoke of women who were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. He told of women who counted years not by the names of the leaders, but by the names of their many husbands. Marriage became nothing more than an unfortunate necessity. Marriage was in such trouble they taxed the unmarried. How do you like that? If you weren't married, you were taxed. There's some incentive to get married. If you weren't married, you couldn't receive inheritance. Marriage was in trouble. Rome's contact with Greece turned into a downward spiral of immorality. Now, it was in this context that Jesus spoke. Not unlike the present day in which we live. In the present day in which we live, there is a cultural divide that exists between those who hold marriage sacred and those who devalue it. Serial marriage and divorce are now commonplace. Marriage is seen as temporary, not a, not a permanent institution. Many frightening parallels can be drawn between the immorality of the Greco-Roman culture and that of 2009 America. Presently, we are dealing with attacks on the definition of marriage itself. We are witnessing an ongoing moral slide of huge proportions and huge ramifications. See, in Jesus' day, people had turned marriage into a matter of opinion. They twisted God's word to say what they wanted it to say or what they needed it to say to justify their lifestyles. Same thing happens today. But this much is clear. Scripture is clear. Divorce is not the preference of God. 
It was never commanded by God. It was never condoned by God. It is God's concession due to man's sin. The biblical crowns for divorce are not an instruction on what to do, but an allowance based upon the hardness of mankind's heart. That go with me to Matthew chapter 19. We will get there someday. Matthew chapter 19 and verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees had come to Jesus, testing him, and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Why were they asking that? Because that's what they had been told. That's what was being practiced. That's what they taught. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, they said to him, Then why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. God hates divorce. God hates divorce because it rips apart what should have been considered permanent. Malachi chapter 2. Let's go there. The last book in the Old Testament, right next to Matthew. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, start there. God is, is recounting over and over again the things that his people are doing unfaithfully. And he says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then he says in verse 16, I hate divorce. He had said, don't let anyone deal treacherously against the wife of their youth. God's original plan was for marriage to be permanent. And since divorce is not part of God's original plan, all believers should hate divorce like God does. Even so, divorce is a controversial and debated subject. Biblically speaking, there are only four views on divorce and remarriage, and all four can be found among various Christian groups. Only one of them is taught by Jesus, but yes, all four can be found among various Christian groups. The harshest view is that divorce is never allowed for any reason. Divorce is never allowed. Another view is that divorce is permitted in some circumstances, but but remarriage never. A third view is that divorce and remarriage are permitted in certain situations, certain circumstances. And last and most popular... 
and you'll see why, is divorce and remarriage are allowed for any reason or for no reason. That's the most popular one, of course, and these are all taught in Christian churches. In our treatment of uh, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, we need to explain Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, because that's where Jesus is quoting from when he talks about the certificate of divorce, and that's what is being alluded to also, uh, referred to in, in Matthew chapter 19. But Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house, and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, leading Pharisaic scholars in Jesus' day debated the grounds of divorce that Moses established and two primary opinions emerged around two schools of thought. The first was along the lines of Rabbi Hillel's school, the most lenient and liberal, by the way, who said that a wife could be sent away for any reason. So those Pharisees that came to Jesus in the day, in Matthew 19, either were disagreeing with Rabbi Hillel or were agreeing with her, but when they asked, is it true, do you believe that you can send a, a, a man can send his wife away for any reason at all? That was the view. Um, even if she burnt the food, he could send her away. That was before toaster ovens even. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound fair to me. Doesn't sound very fair, does it? Well, that was one view. The other view was Rabbi Shammai, the most strict and conservative of of the rabbis, said there were no grounds for divorce except for adultery and unchastity. There was another rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, who went so far as to claim that in Deuteronomy 24, that, that phrase, find no favor in his sight, meant divorce was allowed if a man found another woman more attractive than she. This whole idea of requiring a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce, literally a book of cutting off, there was actually a script that you would read, uh, words you would say, uh, basically the gist was, you're free, you're free to go, you can go be married to someone else, and you're not my property anymore. In in essence, that was pretty much the gist of it. it. Now here's the thing. While the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted this this to mean uh, this was to make marriage more lenient, uh, divorce more lenient and easier. It, that's not the meaning at all. It was the direct opposite. This was not meant to make divorce easier, but rather meant to restrict casual divorce. The scribes and Pharisees had turned it into divorce for any reason. But it was a provision aimed at helping the innocent party to divorce. Uh, 
aimed to help them when it was thrust upon them, forced upon them. Now, women in those days, it's important to know this, is that women in those days could not divorce their husband without his consent. But a man could divorce his wife without her consent. So, basically, often, most often, the innocent party to divorce was the woman. And so it basically gave women protection and freedom to remarry. That was the idea. Because of mankind's sin, this was to protect women. It was a position that Jesus supported. This is the position that Jesus was in line with, right in line with, with Moses. The third, uh, the third choice, basically, in terms of divorce, which is, it is uh, divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. Now, up against the backdrop of both Greek and Roman views, as well as the practices of the Jews and society in general, which sought the easiest way out of unwanted marriage unions, stands Jesus' teaching. Standing in stark contrast, he gives the case for staying married. They always gave the case for getting out of it. He gave the case for staying married. Verse 32, he says this, but I say to you, and it is amazing, we, we keep hearing this week after week, but I say to you, the incarnate word of God, speaking deliberately, authoritatively, decisively, speaking the very words of scripture, speaking truth itself, and he says, but I say to you, he's straightening it out once again. That everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Now this teaching is explained in fuller detail in Matthew chapter 19. But literally it goes like this. Everyone who divorces his wife like that, like what? For any cause, for unbiblical grounds, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced in that way, for unbiblical grounds, commits adultery. Because to marry a second time without biblical justification for the divorce is to commit adultery. Just as Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, we looked at it last week, it showed uh, that lust is the moral equivalent to adultery. Jesus is showing here that unbiblical divorce is the moral equivalent to adultery as well, and even leads people into adultery. Now, like Moses, Jesus allows for an exception to protect the non-offending party and the institution of marriage from being a sham. The exception it allowed was unchastity. So we need to know what that means, right? What is unchastity? The Greek word is pornia. It's where we get our word pornographic from. Uh, There are a lot of options in terms of how it can be uh, either narrowly translated or broadly translated. In terms of meaning, it it has uh, various meanings, all in the context of sexual immorality. But the the ESV, the New King James Version, translates it sexual immorality. The NIV and the King James translates it fornication. New American Standard translates it unchastity. Some narrowly define it only as adultery. Uh, Others think it's a wider range of sins. 
Basically, it's any kind of improper sexual intercourse and, in, and sexual behavior. It, it seems best to take it in that way. It, it is clear, it is referring to marital and unfaithfulness. Breaking the one flesh bond through sexual sin. That is the only uh, cause or reason that someone can get divorced and, and not uh, create God's displeasure and, and not go against God's design in Scripture. And I realize there's a lot, of, a lot of different variations on how people will even take that. But it's very interesting. When we are trying to excuse some behavior... We sometimes go to the nth degree to, to explain something in a certain way so we're able to do it. When we're trying to prevent ourselves from a certain behavior, it's, we, we are more narrow in our definitions. More broad when we want permission. More narrow when we, want, when we don't want to go there. It's very interesting. Now, um, Jesus, what he's doing, he is formally dismissing the scribes and the Pharisees uh, liberal divorce pro- provisions. Uh, substituting unchastity as the only basis of breaking the one flesh of marriage. Why? Because it's already been broken. In sexual immorality, in adultery, the one flesh has already been broken in effect. And so God gives an allowance then uh, for the unoffending party to be free from the marriage at that point. Not a commandment though. Not an instruction. But an allowance. Now, what should this bring about for us? What should this do for us, hearing the teaching of Jesus in in these two two brief verses? Well, this should give you confidence. It should give you confidence that no matter what anyone says, be it a misguided friend or family member or a state legislator, that God's word stands as the moral standard. That God's word stands as the moral standard. Jesus spoke decisively. He left no room to wonder where he stood on the matter. Uh, as he did with the subject of murder and adultery, uh, and lust and anger, Jesus gave a more complete and internal perspective to the debate. He spoke decisively and he left no room. No room. So based upon Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage, what should we be seeking when it comes to, the, to issues in marriage? What should we be seeking? It's simple, very simple, and it's often missed as an emphasis. We should be seeking reasons to stay married. Period. We should be seeking reasons to stay married, not a way out. The easiest thing to do, the path of least resistance, when the going gets tough, is to give up. The hardest work is in finding ways to work it out. But, but look at all, you could look at all the, the biblical teaching on marriage. And Christian marriage is marked by, by deliberate self-discipline, and self-denial. Following Jesus is marked by that. Now we can always find ways to not do what we don't want to do. 
We can always find ways, find reasons to do what we really want to do. But how about when it's counterintuitive? How about when it's the polar opposite of your thinking? When everything in you wants to throw in the towel. And you know deep down inside, you know you shouldn't. And you know that when giving up would break the command that comes from Jesus himself, two times in Matthew 19.6 and Mark 10 verse 9, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I used to hear those words at, at, at weddings when I was a kid and, and think, what does that mean? Because they would always say it this way. What God has joined together, let no one set asunder. I'm like, what is that? In all my years of going to, to weddings, I've never once heard a pastor explain in the middle of a wedding what that meant. I remember thinking to myself, when I, even when I was a kid, thinking that means... You're not supposed to let anybody come from the outside of your marriage and break you up. That's part of the picture. As the years went on, I realized it also meant that no one from inside the marriage should break it up either. That's part of the picture, but there's another part of the picture. And it's this. What God has joined together, man does not have the right to break up. Because when we do, we're playing God. Because this is God's work. Marriage is God's territory. Believers then should never consider divorce unless there is no other recourse. No other recourse. With God's help, a marriage can survive even the worst situations. And believe me, uh, I, I, have, I have seen and heard many Worst case scenarios. I personally, as a pastor, do not counsel people to get a divorce. I have never once in over 20 some years of of ministry say, you need to go get a divorce. I am committed to, to challenging people to understand God's design for marriage and God's design for reconciliation. It is only when you when you understand and accept God's view of marriage and his call to reconciliation, that you're able to understand and even ask the questions regarding what is God's view of divorce and its ramifications. See, there are many reasons to stay married. First amongst them would be the idea of keeping your vows. Keeping your vows. A really good reason to stay married is because you said you would. You said you would. You made a covenant between God and you and your spouse and probably a bunch of other people were there too, listening in. And you said you would. Now we break our word all the time. But God remains faithful. We may be faithless at times, but God remains faithful. Another reason is to protect the members of your family. Now some people will say, well, we're, we're just staying married till the kids get out of the house and then we're, I'm out of there. That is selfish, martyr reason. That is not right. But there is a case to be made for protecting the members of your family by staying married. 
Whatever negative elements are in your, your home or your household right now, and never to condone uh, ill treatment or abuse, but whatever issues may be present, they only multiply with divorce. I've heard people say, well, my kids are doing great. No, they're not. I've heard people say, that was the best thing that ever happened to our family. No, it wasn't. God may have gotten you through it. God showed himself faithful to you to get through it. But it was not God's intent. You think about it. Anytime we sin, that's not God's intent. Protecting the members of our family, that whatever negative elements there are in our families, they only multiply with divorce. The divorce is never the best option. Now, it may alleviate, obviously, it may alleviate some short-term pain. But the long-term fallout overrides any short-term fixes. By the way, you should know this too, that second and third and fourth and subsequent marriages end in divorce sooner than first marriages do. They last, they don't last as long. The fourth time usually isn't a charm. So to keep your vows and protect the members of your family. And and there's also the overarching goal of glorifying God. The glory of God above all. That those who engage in unbiblical divorce are playing God. If you think about it, anytime we sin, we are usurping God's throne. But when we stay together for the right reasons, we're looking at the context of marriage here. When we stay together for the right reasons... Not for martyr reasons, but for godly, for God's glory. We then reflect his glory and feel his pleasure and experience his blessing. What if you've blown it? What if you say, well, but I've been divorced. Or I have married a divorced person and I'm wondering what that means to my current marriage. Those are questions you, you need to have asked. And if you haven't, now you can ask them and deal with those. That is, those are questions you need to deal with. But I've got to tell you, the answer cannot simply be what makes you feel better or what makes you like me or what makes you more comfortable. There are, uh, the answer has got to come from Scripture. Too many people give people answers they have no authority to give. They speak for God when God does not say what they say. Well, God just wants you to be happy. Well, you shouldn't have to endure that. So what does God's word say to those who've fallen in this context? The authority by which we stand is the word of God, applied by the spirit of God. Well, let's look at a few verses. 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 1.12. Apostle Paul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It was a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. You see how he viewed himself and you see what he thought of what God did. And he says, I found 
mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Think about Hosea in the Old Testament. What did God tell him to do? You think about God in the Old Testament with his people continually taking his people back. His adulterous people. You know 1 John 1, 9 most likely. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How about Psalm 103? Psalm 103. Verse 3 who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. All your confessed iniquities. How about uh, Psalm 103, verse 12? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. See, yes, there are consequences for sin. Yes, relationships need healing. Yes, scars often remain. And, and no, divorce is not a private matter. Don't fool yourself into thinking that. Divorce is a public matter, and the effects multiply. But even so, even so, there is forgiveness with Jesus. There is forgiveness with Jesus. So what are you to do if you maybe find yourself in that situation where you have been divorced, or you have married a divorced person, and have wondering what it means to your current marriage, and maybe you realize, I didn't do it the biblical way. I have committed adultery Biblically speaking, what do I do to make it right? Well, if your divorce took place on unbiblical grounds and the guilty party repents, let's say you're the guilty party, let's say the other, your spouse is the guilty party, if they repent, the grace of God covers that sin. Just like any other sin we confess. And a sign of true repentance is a desire to, to practice what the Word of God says. In this context, it would be practicing 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, which says this, To the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, if she divorces him, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Same rule applies to both. Willing to pursue reconciliation with your former spouse, if possible. If possible, by the way. If it's not possible, because either the former spouse is an unbeliever, or is remarried, then the believer can, either, can then enter into another relationship with wise, godly counsel, of course. In cases where a believer divorces on unbiblical grounds, and then remarries, he or she is guilty of the sin of adultery until that sin is confessed. Now, here's what we know. Let me remind you. God immediately forgives sin that is repented of and confessed. Nothing in Scripture states otherwise. So then that believer can then continue in their current marriage and serve God and, and go with a clean conscience. As, as, I, as we close this up, let me, let me say this. In, in matters of, of marriage and divorce and remarriage, it's tough. But here's the great thing. God doesn't kick you when you're down. God doesn't also explain away your sin. 
Somebody had to pay. Somebody did. Jesus took it. But Jesus does not impose an intolerable restriction on people. Jesus doesn't say, you better not or I'm going to get you. He doesn't do that. He warns them of the dangers of divorce. That it causes others uh, to sin and it causes other sins. He points them to a much better alternative than breaking up a bond that God put together. Far from imposing a a chokehold or a yoke of pharisaical legalism, he captures our hearts by grace. By grace. By the grace of the gospel. You see, some people make divorce the unpardonable sin. It's not. The unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus and dying and going to hell. Now, divorce may create a living hell at times, but God's not going to send you to hell for being divorced. Some people demonize divorce to the extent that they fail to uphold the sanctity of marriage, thinking that avoiding divorce is not as bad as trashing the bonds and boundaries of God's institution. Two wrongs don't make a right. We are called to a higher standard. We're called to a higher standard. The church of Jesus Christ is called to be a countercultural community. That's what the Sermon on the Mount really is showing us. The gospel points us to a man who died for his enemies. So the gospel creates relationships of loving service over selfishness. The gospel calls us to holiness. Therefore, God's people are to live in the loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. When we do not, we are denying the truth of the gospel. The gospel creates a human community radically different from any society around it. See, this is the way gospel changed people are to respond due to the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And our job is to yield to His influence, to yield to God's influence. We're to avoid both the secular society's idolization of sex and divorce and traditional society's fear of it. We are to conform ourselves in mind and body to the gospel in the form of abstinence outside of marriage and fidelity and joy and blessing in it. We are called to affirm the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman, calling people to serve God by reflecting his glory and his covenant love in lifelong faithfulness, lifelong loyalty, and then teaching our kids these same truths. And we are called to affirm the goodness of serving Christ as singles, whether for a time or for life. And we are called to help all people suffering from all the effects of our human condition, whatever issues or failings are, or, are present, with compassionate community and family. See, we are called to be here for one another because Jesus is here with us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we come to you once again acknowledging our need of you. Whether it is in this topic of this this subject of marriage or divorce or remarriage or whether it is something else, Lord, we need you. And we are dependent upon you. We are confident in what you do. And we pray once again for your mercy and your grace. 
to shower us. We pray in Jesus' name.